0: Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features the Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande*, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at Des Moines dot org.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nubby. Later this hour, we will reveal the selections for the 2023 Talk of Iowa Book Club. But first, in his first novel, Sean Adams took us deep into a dystopian crisis as volunteers dug for victims, survivors and recyclables in the heap left behind when the world's largest apartment building collapsed. It was called The Heap. Now his follow-up is being released, and he takes us to the far reaches of the earth to a large seven-story, nearly empty building called the Northern Institute. The research taking place at the Institute has been suspended, but just in case it should ever resume, a team of three people has been sent to live and work in the building, making this the most unusual office satire I have ever encountered. Sean Adams is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop. He lives in Des Moines. Today, as I mentioned, is release day for this novel. He'll be reading at Beaverdale Books in Des Moines tonight at 6.30. Hello, Sean.
0: Hey, Charity. It's great to be here.
1: Yeah, welcome back to the show. And I, d- I want to start off with a little reading, uh, again, to set the scene. Um, so as, as we dive into this conversation, people have a little bit of an idea of what we're talking about. Would you just read a little bit from the beginning of the book?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So.
1: Oh, we seem to have lost our oh. connection. Oh, now you're back.
0: <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right.
1: Now you can read.
0: Oh, awesome. Yeah. So this is the um, this is the very beginning of the book. Um, it uh, yeah, kind of sets the tone for the voice and you know like what you can expect. So yeah. Um, <clears throat> there are only two others on the caretaking t- team I supervise, Gibbs and Klein. Each I'd estimate about ten years my junior. The thing we take care of is a sprawling building called the Northern Institute, located in a remote region where the snow never melts. I cannot say exactly where. I fell asleep just 10 minutes into the helicopter ride here several months ago, and when I awoke shortly before our arrival, all I could see was an endless expanse of white. The Northern Institute had, for a long time, been a lively research facility. Now, having been stripped of its research budget, it is merely a facility— When research halted and the researchers were evacuated, Kay crunched the numbers and deemed it cheaper to hire a small team to look after things than to make the anticipated repairs where the building simply left vacant until research could resume. And so here we are, the three of us in my office, drinking coffee, preparing for Friday's work. Outside, a harsh gust howls across the snow's surface. Windy out there. Even worse, I say. Even worse last night. Klein does not respond, but instead looks out the window. I come from a windy place, Gibbs says, so I'm fairly used to the wind, but yes, it was very windy. I leave a moment for Klein to contribute to the conversation, but he continues gazing out the window, his eyes thinning to a squint. It was whipping so intensely against the walls, I say to Gibbs. I barely got to sleep. Gibbs's grip on her coffee mug tightens just slightly. If you're too tired and need the rest, I'd be happy to oversee things, for the day at least. That won't be necessary, I say. I'm not tired. But you said you barely slept. I said I barely got to sleep, I say. Once I did, I slept quite well, which is not true. I slept terribly, but I will not admit as much. Definitely not to Gibbs. Something to know, it is not required that I, as supervisor, make my office available for coffee and light socialization each weekday morning before, we work, before work begins. This I do of my own volition in the spirit of generosity, but Gibbs and Klein don't seem to realize this. Perhaps if I'd wanted recognition, I should not have opened my office for coffee and light socialization on our first day here. Perhaps I should have waited a week or two and then said, hey, how about I open up my office each morning for some coffee and light socialization? Or maybe just, hey, how about I open up my office each morning for some coffee, as the outright mention of light socialization might create an atmosphere that is neither light nor particularly social. At any rate, whether I made overt my desire for there to be light socialization is immaterial. The point is... Had I waited, the other two might have known a world without coffee and light socialization to look forward to each morning, and then they might see my commitment to going above and beyond and appreciate me more. But I do not feel appreciated. I feel taken for granted and often disrespected, and also powerless to correct matters, as voicing one's desire to be respected and not be taken for granted is much like voicing one's desire for light socialization, antithetical to achieving the stated goal."
1: That is Sean Adams reading from his novel The Thing in the Snow. And uh, that obviously introduces us into three characters who are working very closely together in isolation. And isolation is a major, major theme in this novel. They are in this giant building in the middle of literally nowhere. They look out the windows And at least at first, the only thing they can see as far as they look is snow. So they are isolated. They only have contact through a helicopter that drops things off once a week. That's how they have contact with the outside world. I was shocked, Sean, to learn that this was not inspired by the pandemic. This was something you were working on before we all went into quarantine.
0: Yeah, you know the first draft I had done, I had actually done kind of like a while ago, basically when I was um, just finishing up work on the heap, and so I, I I did come up with this idea. I just thought it would be funny; it'd be a funny novella or something like that, maybe something like a short story. <clears throat> and then I had I'd been working on it for a little while and wasn't really coming together. And then actually, it was it was it was the summer of 2020 when I was like, oh, I should take that back out again, and yeah. And, you know, for maybe for some obvious reasons, everything kind of clicked into place a little bit more.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So how did the pandemic
0: change this project? Well, I definitely feel like so. I think one of the things I was working on and that I I struggled with early on was just like sort of like, you know, like the the feeling of this place and, and the weekends at this place were actually like one of the most interesting things to try and figure out. Like what would it be like when you're, you're in the middle of nowhere, you have nothing to do for, you know, 48 hours. And, you know, you're in this building that has nothing but chairs and tables, and that's it. And so kind of the sense of timelessness, uh, you know, or like, or, or, or not timeless, but like the sense of the the lack of grounding in time, that was something I kind of really, really was able to tap into, um, you know, that that changed a lot as during the pandemic, where I was just like, sort of, you know, experiencing that where, you know, you're, you realize it's Tuesday all of a sudden and, you know, you don't know how you got there. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So that was the biggest that was the biggest change that I that I managed during the pandemic.
1: Although a lot of the writers that I've talked to over the last few years um, were basically living the pandemic lifestyle before the <laughs> pandemic struck. Yeah. So I mean, how, how did the pandemic change your life?
0: You know, I just, I think it's just like more generally, like my wife was working from home, you know, we were just always home, just not not going out anywhere, you know, just kind of the the sense, because I was already working from home before the pandemic. But, you know, there was always kind of the grounding of, you know, it's five o'clock, my wife arrives home, we figure out dinner, that sort of thing, you know, or, you know, it's the weekend, maybe I'm going to uh, go out to dinner with a friend or something like that. And so, you know, just sort of like eliminating all of those uh, little things.
1: That mark the passage of time.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and obviously that gave you and your wife more more opportunities for coffee and light socialization.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of coffee and light socialization <laughs> throughout the pandemic, for sure.
1: Well, and that was one of the things that I was thinking about was not just interactions with co-workers because obviously we do have some um, co-worker interactions that are tense and <laughs> fascinating and at times hilarious in this novel but the um the interactions that I think a lot of us had during those periods uh, in the early on in the pandemic were either with our families, you know, trying to interact with them in completely new and different ways where there would be four people in a house together trying to accomplish completely different goals than they normally would be. Or um, maybe going into a workplace where you're only working with one or two other people, whereas you'd normally be working with a whole office full of people. So that it's not just about isolation. It's isolation <laughs> with this very tiny team.
0: No, totally. Totally no it is it's it's you know it's specifically there's just like that there's only just you know a few people there um you know that it's 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 and they're in a huge building too you know i think that that's another aspect of it that yeah like you were saying you know you go into work you're working with one or two coworkers and you know but like you know they don't the office hasn't shrunk you're still in this huge building you're right. still you know you know you're at your desk and they're at theirs and you know halfway across the room or whatever and so yeah just kind of like getting that sense of just, like, everything is is just different, you know? Like, everything is – everyone is a little separate. Everyone – you know, that sense of isolation, but, like – isolation within groups.
1: So I sat down and read the novel without reading reviews of the novel, um, and which is something that I often do. And then I started looking at reviews. And I saw that people were describing this as a psychological thriller, which is not the way that I felt (laughs) at all. How do you describe it?
0: You know, I feel like there are there are definitely, you know, like moments of unsettlingness or, you know, like that's sure. the goal at least. But yeah, no, I definitely kind of think of it almost like in some ways almost like a comedy of manners, you know, like in in certain ways where it's just, you know, it's a lot of characters who are struggling with each other and maybe not addressing head on why they're struggling with each other. There's a lot of, you know, like workplace drama that is you know, a stand-in for something much larger, some interpersonal conflict that's much larger. There's a lot of that. So it's I, I think of it more as almost like a comedy or like, yeah, like comedy of manners or like a workplace comedy for sure, with you know elements of the the strange and the you know surreal kind of mixed in.
1: Absolutely. And your first novel was very dystopian. This felt like our reality just slightly twisted.
0: Yes. Yes, definitely. yeah. no, I don't think of this as necessarily as like a dystopian novel, I think unless
1: like, we're living in a dystopia,
0: Sean. <laughs> yeah, no that, that, that's a great. It's a great point. Yeah, yeah, maybe slightly more dystopian than reality, maybe slightly less dystopian than the heap., uh, yeah, yeah, I think that that's a great way to put it or some you know, like like elements of dystopia, you know, for sure, but yeah, no, I don't I think that this is definitely more of kind of like a compact uh, you know, like just like like a satire of of real life.
1: Absolutely, and and of course we're, we are we um, are interacting as a reader. We're interacting really with just one character in the book, the narrator of the book, who yes. is not an entirely reliable narrator. <laughs> at least, at least that was what I found. So we're going to take a short break, Sean, and we will talk more about this novel of isolation and office interactions, and with a little bit of the bizarre woven in as well. And Sean, we're also going to talk. About about your book series within the book because that was <laughs> one of my very favorite parts. That's coming up in just a moment. I'm talking to Sean Adams. His novel is The Thing in the Snow. He'll be at Beaverdale Books this evening at 6:30 for a book launch event. Adams is a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop and he lives in Des Moines. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll also get a preview of the 2023 Talk of Iowa Book Club. This is Talk of Iowa.
0: Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at desmoinemetroopera.org.
1: I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we will reveal the selections for the 2023 Talk of Iowa Book Club. Right now, we are talking about a book, a new novel called The Thing in the Snow by Sean Adams. He is a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop and he lives in Des Moines. He will be reading at Beaverdale Books in Des Moines tonight at 6.30. And The Thing in the Snow is really kind of a workplace comedy. It takes place in a large building, a seven-story, nearly empty building called the Northern Institute in a very isolated, snowbound region. There are three people sent to keep this institute viable. As the research has been shut down, There are there's this team that has been sent there basically just to make it possible for the research to start up again at any time. And uh, Sean, just before the break, we were talking a little bit about these three individuals. So, I mean, this is a large part of where the workplace comedy comes in is that there are these three people. They are isolated together. They have to work together all the time. And uh, they are led by this man who we eventually learn, his last name is Hart, right? Yes. Um, And on the team, he has Klein, Klein considers himself to be an artist although we see very very little evidence of that but he's a creative type um, Gibbs is the female on the team and uh, Hart believes that she wants to take over his leadership position he feels quite threatened by her she seems to be perhaps I'm gonna I'm gonna say the most capable of the three of them so I I can see why he feels (laughs) threatened by her. But there are these three people and and it's like a bureaucratic nightmare because (laughs) they are sent there simply to be living people in the building, but they are given meaningless tasks that are incredibly time consuming. Tell me about that whole construct and what you were trying to do.
0: Yeah, I just, you know, what's funny is like in an earlier draft, maybe they did more like kind of um you know like custodial work or they cleaned more or they did things that were a little bit more active you know th- that almost have at least the veneer of you know necessity kind of you know and and then kind of as as i went forward it was just you know more and more it seemed like oh what if they just did absolutely nothing you know like really like they're just sitting in chairs they're like opening doors to make sure the hinges don't sound too loud they're doing all of these just tasks that are almost like they're like like tedious is an understatement um and so yeah the idea for that just kind of came from you know like that that I wanted to and you know I wanted to write about isolation I wanted to write about distraction I also just wanted to kind of you know it's definitely like a little bit of a a, a poke at you know at all sorts of you know kind of like jobs you find out there that are just sort of you know filling space basically um so definitely wanted to kind of you know a little bit of a a poke at, you know, like, late capitalism and and just the sort of jobs that people end up doing that, you know, nobody can kind of really define and that, like, might not be necessary at all. But definitely, you know, but even a job like that can drive somebody, you know, a heart into, uh, like, a somebody like heart into, you know, like, like, he gets obsessed with it, and he's obsessed with, like, being the best at it. And, like, you know, every job that exists. There's always the person who, who who takes it a little too seriously. So yeah, that was kind of. That was kind of, you know, the, the fun of it is is creating a, a job that seems almost impossible to take seriously and then creating the one person who would take it seriously.
1: Well, and it made me think about, again, in, in real life, uh, I think a lot of us have had experience with jobs where we really bring nothing to the job. There's <laughs> nothing about this job that requires anything special in us. We are just getting a thing done. And that can feel like when you start a job like that, like, oh, this is amazing. I have very few responsibilities. And it's not challenging and I'm going to get paid to do this. But then uh, there was a whole episode of The Hidden Brain about this. And there's been research done about these kinds of jobs where people are so deeply unhappy in jobs that don't require any special skills and where effort is not rewarded. (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So, And they do have this... uh, This overseer who is offsite, who clearly does not care about them (laughs) at all, and her name is Kay. Is that her first name or her last name? Because we only learn everybody else's last names. I was confused.
0: I think of it as um, her first name. Okay, Uh, you know, I think that like kind of like it was kind of a, a, a decision almost to kind of never fully reveal like what you know that like it's Klein, Gibbs, and Hart like at the institute. Uh, and then Gilroy, and then you know, like these these names that kind of definitely seem like last names. It was definitely like a, a choice to kind of make it a little vague of of you know, is this just a world with a strange naming convention, or or is are these last names? But I think of Kay as as her first name. All right, and yeah.
1: Kay is the the person who gives them the tasks and that they need to report back to. Hart needs to report back to every week, and I think. The ultimate act of cruelty in this novel is when Kay tells Hart that he does not need to give her any additional information. Post-it <laughs> notes are unnecessary. He doesn't need to communicate with her further. That is such a crushing blow. <laughs> and and it but I mean, it seems like a small thing, but it was so powerful do you have inspiration from real life did you ever have a terrible boss who tried to crush your soul
0: oh no, no you know <laughs> not not to this extent for sure but you know i think that there is there there often does feel like you know in in any in any career and in any job it often feels like you know you you hear about it you know when you when you do something wrong and then you know so often you're you're just kind of coasting along and you're thinking like am i like am i doing anything here like you know like am i am i doing what you know like am i am i doing what i'm supposed to be doing or not and so kind of you know and you're just like desperate for approval and you know but for the most part you know it's like your supervisor is out there Uh, And and they've got their own things going on. They can't necessarily always give you the approval you're looking for. And I think of Hart as as somebody who's like desperate for that approval. Yeah. Yeah. This is the
1: most demoralizing workplace Yes,
0: exactly. Yeah.
1: Now, my favorite part of the novel was this sort of sub plot uh, in the novel where Hart, he wants to be a great leader. He has aspirations of being the best manager in the world. And he has brought with him to this remote outpost a series of novels that are about leadership in the workplace and they um are they feature a protagonist called Jack French and you have dreamed up plots for I, I don't know how many of these novels that you weave in throughout the book and they're like they sound like action thrillers but oh, they're yeah, all no. about workplace leadership this they're brilliant where did you get this
0: idea I just, you know, it's hard to say. I just, like, I always love, like, I love a story within a story. And so, you know, the idea of, you know, like, I wanted Hart to be obsessed with something and its leadership and then kind of thinking more about, you know, just, like, what kind of absolutely ridiculous thing can he be reading? Like what kind of thing and at first I, you know, at one point I was thinking maybe he'd just be reading like leadership books, you know, but then I and then I thought, you know, it's also just a nice break because like because the story itself of what they're doing, the things they're doing are so mundane and so simple that kind of it's I think it's a fun break to kind of, you know, like like occasionally launch into this world where it's this, you know, this guy Jack French and he's like, you know, he's 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 dealing with like, like disasters. And he's, you know, like, he's basically like a super soldier who's a manager. (laughs) And, you know, like, and so yeah, so kind of where that came from is just this idea of, you know, like a nice, like, it's like a fun, it's a fun kind of contrast to the work they're doing. And just like, you know, this, this idea of, of somebody like Hart would be so obsessed with leadership that even when he would, you know, choose to read a novel, he would read these books that are still about leadership.
1: Well, and what makes this this book so much fun are these little details within the book. And I just want you to know how much I appreciated the last line of your acknowledgments, which is a very sweet acknowledgment, but also a callback to the Jack French novels. And I'm sure that there's a little part of you that are like, is anybody going to notice that I did that?
0: No this is this is really satisfying good,
1: to hear This good video. good good. I 100% <laughs> noticed. 100% laughed out loud. Uh, and you'll have to you have to read the acknowledgments but you have to read the whole novel first. To, yeah. <laughs> to find it even remotely funny. Um, so so I want to talk about distraction because, as, as I've said, I mean, this is a satire. It is bizarre. These people are living at the ends of the earth. This is a situation that pretty much could not happen, at least I hope, couldn't really <laughs> happen. And yet it's incredibly relatable because there are elements of all of our lives that are reflected in this. Distraction is a huge part of the novel. I mean, that's that's really an overwhelming theme in the novel because, as I mentioned, everybody, the three people who are supposed to be on this team working at this institute, when they look out the window, all they can see is snow until one day they can see a thing in the snow and they can't identify the thing in the snow. And... Just its presence and the question about it becomes this overwhelming obsession. They cannot complete these tedious tasks that they have been assigned because of their distraction by this thing in the snow. We live in this world, Sean, where we are distracted constantly. And here is a group of people with nothing to do but focus. And yet yet they are just as distracted as all of us with our smartphones and the internet and the televisions and co-workers to chat with and all of the things that distract us every single day. Tell me about your relationship with distraction.
0: Oh, I mean... I you know I have a very close relationship with uh distraction. You know, I feel like, you know, I you know I I sit down to read my book, you know, at night or something and I'll and I'll be scrolling through Instagram looking at, you know, dog videos or something. You know, I definitely feel like that's kind of, you know, like that's a central theme, you know, I'll sit down to to write, but you know you're you write on the computer and so you have the whole, the whole internet right there, you know, it's just kind of a constant, it's a constant struggle to just like keep focused and get things done. And, and whenever I'm able to, you know, whenever I'm able to focus and and actually get my work done, or my writing done, I'm always just, you know, I'm always surprised that, you know, this only took, you know, I'm like, oh that took 40 minutes, you know, like that was, you know, I got a lot of work done in those 40 minutes, because I, you know, I didn't, I didn't click, uh you know, to didn't, didn't, like have a, it didn't have like a wild hair and then Google something and then fall down a a Wikipedia rabbit hole or something. And then, yeah, but yeah, no, that was, distraction was a huge part of it. And also, but also, I also feel like it's like important that Hart in trying to, uh, you know, squash the distraction just makes everything much worse. (laughs) That he's, yeah, that that it's almost, it's like almost like kind of the constant battle of like, you know, can you, can you ever fully not be distracted? And like, what does that even look like?
1: Well, and and that's, again, that's what makes this so relatable because the situation is completely unrelatable. And yet every single one of us has attempted to quash distraction, has locked ourselves out of our phones or, you know, had that tree growing on the phone. That was a big, (laughs) a big uh, trend for a while, Uh, you know, tried to take all of these steps to limit distraction. And yet. It's something that humans do not seem to be able to battle very well. And it also made me wonder, you know, we live in this, we we talk constantly about how we live in this age of distraction. Sean, have we always lived in an age of distraction
0: (laughs) you know that's a great question and i think you know probably the answer is yes and also probably um you know there's probably something about kind of like fighting the distraction that that just only makes it worse or that like that there's there's also part of it that it's just like you know like like this this idea of a of a life of pure efficiency is also kind of like you know like that you know that's it's turning yourself into a robot basically you know you're you know that 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 this is part of you know you know you know, the human condition is that there are distractions. And, you know, it's also, you know if we weren't distracted, you know, if I wasn't distracted, I probably also wouldn't come up with half the ideas I write about, you know, and if I was, you know, if I was just constantly like focused, I'd finish things a lot quicker, but I probably they might not be as funny or, you know, all those. Yeah, it's kind of Yeah, So, but I like but I like that. Yeah. No, I think like, yeah, the age of distraction is just, you know,
1: the human condition. Yeah,
0: exactly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. From (laughs) the beginning. Yeah. (laughs) Now,
1: Now, speaking of coming up with these ideas, uh, you know, sitting in and reading the novel, it, it it feels like you're locked into this world. And I was annoying my family because I was reading it on a, a road trip, and I kept laughing. And then everybody has that impulse to say, "Why are you laughing?" Like, well, you don't really want me to tell you because <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to be funny, and I'm just going to go on and on. Um, but I am curious. These I I've read two of your novels now, and there are so many incredibly off the wall inventive twists and turns in each of them. Tell me about your brain. How how,
0: <laughs> how do you come up with these ideas? You know, I think a lot of it is like that. I, I mean, in both cases, it's funny to say this maybe for The Thing on the Snow, because it's like a very sparse world. But I do really, I mean, I really start with kind of the world building aspect of a novel. And that's always just like, that's kind of like the joy of writing to me is kind of, inventing these weird little worlds and and so and then but I I also just find a lot of I find a lot of joy in then kind of like establishing the rules and then kind of you know like there's there's nothing I feel like there's like you know like there's like funny one-liners you know and there's funny jokes and stuff but I feel like there's nothing quite as satisfying as you know something that can only work like you were saying it's like a joke that can literally only work you know if you're on page you know 150. You had to read the first hundred and fifty pages right. to get this joke.
1: And it's very, very funny. But you very, cannot tell exactly, your exactly. spouse who's and driving. Then, yeah. yeah.
0: No, totally. <laughs> no, exactly. And I and I do feel like that that's you know, that's kind of like that's a goal of mine. But yeah, it really does start from me with with the world and then kind of, you know, that that it's not necessarily about you know, like funny characters or, you know, funny scenes necessarily. It's just like, if you create a weird enough world, it's just like inevitably going to be pretty funny.
1: Do you question yourself? I mean, I can imagine you think of something and it is funny and it, it probably is entertaining you, <laughs> but... Without explaining it to other people, without having somebody respond to this whole world that you've built, how do you know if it's funny or if it's just, you're losing it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, I mean, the answer is you don't really know, but <laughs> you just kind of hope, you know, because it's always really funny too, because I have these scenes, you know, of each book, and I think that they're so great. And then, and then I, you know, my friends read the book and, you know, like one friend is like, you know, oh my God, like the part that really cracked me up is this part. And you're like, Oh yeah, that was just like a throw-in little thing that I <laughs> that I just like you know like came up in a in a third or fourth draft you know that I just tossed in there and like I never I didn't think of that as like the central funny scene in the book and you know and I think it it does kind of come down to just sort of yeah like like you you don't really know but you just have to like trust the world to kind of build the comedy in. <laughs>
1: So we only have about 30 seconds left. Uh what's next for you?
0: Uh I'm working on something, you know, uh I'm working on a new thing now. It's uh you know, it's it's kind of in progress, but it's uh, kind of a series of of shorter like really short chapters another it was another project I started during the pandemic. Uh, kind of just to keep myself sane, but uh, yeah, it's it's another weird one, another f- hopefully funny one. will you know, maybe to me, <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah, yeah, keeping
1: yourself sane. I'm I question your sanity, Sean, in, <laughs> in reading in reading your novels. But <laughs> thank you so much. This was so delightful. The book was delightful, and it was wonderful to talk to you today. Yeah,
0: thank you for having me.
1: Sean Adams is the author of The Thing in the Snow. It's launch day, and he'll be reading at Beaverdale Books in Des Moines tonight at six. 30. If you're looking for other great reads, stay tuned. We're just about to tell you what's on the list for the Talk of Iowa Book Club in 2023. This is Talk of Iowa. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebby. Happy New Year. It is time to look ahead to 2023. The Talk of Iowa Book Club has been going strong for three years now. Our final 2022 book club conversation about Homegoing by Yah Jesse aired last month. And, of course, you can listen to any of our previous book club conversations on our podcast. You can find them all on iowapublicradio.org slash book club. And you can join our growing community on Facebook. Facebook. Search for IPR's Talk of Iowa Book Club. But as I said, it is now time to look ahead and reveal the Talk of Iowa Book Club list for 2023. Caitlin Troutman is an IPR talk show producer and a voracious reader. She is also my chief collaborator on the Talk of Iowa Book Club. Welcome, Caitlin.
2: Hey, Charity. I'm so excited to talk about books.
1: (laughs) Me too. And this year we're going to read six books. Last year, we said we were going to read six, and then we read seven because we got excited. But we're <laughs> we're planning to read six books this year. And we have put our heads together and come up with a list that I think we're both very excited about,
2: right? Oh, yeah. I'm excited about the ones I've read and the ones I haven't read.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, let's start with our February book. What are we reading in February.
2: So our February Book Club date is February 21st, and we'll be reading These Precious Days by Anne Patchett. It is an essay collection that came out in 2021.
1: And this is one of my suggestions for the list this year. Anne Patchett, of course, is a a beloved writer for so many reasons. She is also a um, University of Iowa workshop grad, so we have a, a special connection to her in the state of Iowa. And I just was really profoundly moved by this collection. It's so personal. And it takes place mostly, I mean, she looks at her past in some of the essays, but it mostly takes place throughout the pandemic. And it is a deep exploration of an unexpected friendship. And I just felt like it was exactly what I needed to read after living through two years of pandemic life. And also, you know, reflecting on friendships and relationships in my life, I, I loved this book, and just like all the books that I think I have ever suggested for the Talk of Iowa Book Club, it's one of those books where you, I read it, and I'm like, gosh, everybody should read this book, <laughs> and, and I really want to talk to people about it. So this one's new to you, though, right, Caitlin?
2: It is. Although, you know, I had a part-time job working at a bookstore for a little while, and the owner of the store loved this book so it's been on my to read list for a little while and because it does seem like one of those books that everyone could use I'm ready to hear about how other people coped and some of the silver linings they found
1: absolutely it's not all silver linings but it's uh it's just it's it's really thought-provoking and, and lovely. So I think you'll love it. I think a lot of people will love it. And I, I do think it's going to be a book that provokes really great conversation, which, of course, is one of the most important things in a book club pick. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, what are we going to talk about in April?
2: So we're planning to have our April book club on the 18th, and we're reading this year's All-Iowa Read selection, How High We Go in the Dark by Sequoia Nagamatsu, which came out in 2022.
1: And I'm excited about this one. This one's new to both of us, but I did start reading it and then I paused. I read enough of it to say, oh, my gosh, I'm really excited (laughs) to read this book. It is kind of science fiction. I, I guess it probably is technically science fiction. And it begins in the relatively near future, in the year 2030. And that is a year in the book when the warming planet is melting permafrost and we start off with a group of archaeologists who is they're studying the things that are being revealed as the permafrost melts. They're in Siberia but there's also an Arctic plague that is released through all of this melting and that transforms, life on Earth for generations. So uh, talk about uh, subjects that feel incredibly relevant right now, <laughs> talking yep. about a pandemic and global warming. And just from the little taste of the book I've gotten so far, it's so compelling. So I'm, I'm excited. And obviously, I also trust the All I Will Read Selection Committee to pick great books because that is what they have done consistently through the years. So I'm I'm excited to explore this one.
2: Me too. I'm so fascinated by the cli-fi genre, which is what some people call uh, a science fiction related to climate change. I'm almost nervous <laughs> to read this book, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't sound nearly as, you know, heartwarming as our Ann Patchett pick, but it's one of those that I'm already so fascinated, and I haven't started it yet. So I'm I'm excited to read this one, too.
1: All right. And then what are we reading for June?
2: In June, we're meeting on the 20th, and the book that month is The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. And I actually suggested this one, even though I haven't read it yet.
1: Well that makes perfect sense to me because I it was on my to be read list for a couple of years before I picked it up. I think I read it in 2018 after, you know, everybody telling me how amazing this book was over and over again. And they are not wrong. It's it's an incredible book. It is a Pulitzer Prize winner. So again, there's another committee that has a really good track record of picking incredible literature.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it seems like they know what they're doing. Yeah,
1: they, they seem to. It is a really fascinating book. In this book, the Underground Railroad is not a metaphor. There's actually an Underground Railroad that was designed with the purpose of taking enslaved people to freedom, but that doesn't mean that it is an easy journey to, you know, get on this train and travel to freedom. So one of the the amazing things about looking at that time of slavery in this way is that fiction allows you to explore things even more deeply than nonfiction in some ways, because, of course, you get to really empathize with characters and experience the emotions. But then the fact that there's this somewhat magical transportation system means that we experience events in different states around the South. And so we get to see these incredibly vivid and harrowing and, you know, also factually true experiences from history in a brand new way. And that sounds incredibly bleak, and and that is incredibly bleak. But also, these characters are just so wonderful and so compelling that it's a it can be a really difficult read. But also, there are some really wonderful things about it that make it not necessarily something that I would say an enjoying a enjoyable read, but just a a brilliant read. It's so compelling; it carries you forward. And leaves you just sort of brimming with, I don't know, <laughs> I don't because I don't want to just say hope, um, but I, I felt like I learned so much from this journey that that was exhilarating to me. So it it's brilliant.
2: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I, I mean, I part of the reason I love historical fiction is because I like. When it's a subject, you know, maybe I've studied in school or that I continue to learn about, but uh, fiction kind of allows me to understand these different layers and uh, facets to an issue. And Colson Whitehead has just an incredible mind. So I'm very excited to spend some time with this book, even though it sounds like it's difficult.
1: Absolutely. It's... You will not be disappointed, Caitlin. I promise you. I, and I'm excited to read it again. And I always find that to be an enlightening process, to read an amazing book for a second time. So that, that is one of the great joys of this whole book club for me. But let's move on to August. What are we reading in August?
2: August, I'm really excited for. It's Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer.
1: Right. She won the MacArthur Genius Grant this year, But the book came out in 2013. So a lot of people have known about her genius for a long time. But that that sort of brought her back into the the present moment.
2: Mm, Yeah. And this is one of those books that I heard about a lot through word of mouth, especially recently. My father-in-law loves this book. And I am not a big nonfiction reader. And the premise of this book, maybe I should say, is, you know, it's called Braiding Sweetgrass. And she does kind of braid these different strains of knowledge or ways of looking at the world so she talks about botany but also history and viewing land use and practices and just being a person through the lens of her upbringing as an indigenous woman so I was a little skeptical that the science portion would be understandable, that the book would hold my interest, I guess. But I started listening to the audiobook, and the prose is so beautiful. And she's just such an incredible storyteller that immediately those fears went away. And I'm a a huge fan now.
1: (laughs) Oh, that is wonderful. And this is one of those books that has been on my to-read list almost since it came out. You know, people in my circle, read it, loved it. My mom gave me a copy. But when she handed me a copy, my kids were nine and seven. And I, you know, had two jobs. And I was like, I, okay, I'll read it. I'll read it sometime. And I just, I've never gotten to it. So I'm I'm excited to have a reason to sit down and read this book that so many people have told me is brilliant. So I'm excited about that.
2: Yes. And our October book is Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. It came out in early 2021, I believe. And this is one of my picks that I'm I'm very excited to share with people. So this is set in the not-too-distant future. It's told from the point of view of an artificial friend, or an AF, named Clara. She is adopted by a teenager named Josie and... Adopting an artificial friend is pretty common. It's kind of like having a smartphone in this universe. And pretty quickly after Clara is adopted and goes to live with Josie and Josie's mother, we learn that Josie is sick. We're not really sure what with. But because she's sick, Clara develops this kind of faith. And, you know, it raises all these questions about what faith is and love and this sounds this sounds a little overly simplistic, but you know what it means to be a person. In a way, it kind of reminds me of the velveteen rabbit huh. um, where it's kind of viewing the world in this almost passive way, but also very intelligent, very keen observations, very innocent, but uh, revealing. And since it's Ishiguro, it's told in this really, I'd say, subtle, really beautiful way, and it's just a great slow burn.
1: Well, I am so excited about this. I don't actually read very much science fiction, and almost all the science fiction I read is because somebody tells me, you have to read this book. It's just, and, and that means, you know, most of the time I have loved every science fiction book that I've read, but somehow it's just not a genre that I gravitate toward. So I'm so excited because I trust you, Caitlin, and you're <laughs> so excited about this. And that's it's fun for me to be in that role because over the last three years, I've picked the vast majority of Taco Book Club books. So now I'm excited that you're saying, Charity, you have to read this book. It is so brilliant and meaningful, and you're going to love it. So I can't wait to have this experience. Thank you for that.
2: And I don't think I mentioned this, but he's one of my favorite writers. And if I'm not mistaken, you haven't read any of him, right?
1: That is correct. This will be totally new to me. I'm so
2: excited for you.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, I'm excited for me, too. And then what are we reading in December?
2: In December, we're planning to meet on the 19th, and the pick is Fun Home by Alison Bechdel. It's her graphic memoir that came out in 2006. Alison Bechdel, her name might be familiar if you've heard of the Bechdel Test, which is this pop culture kind of movie test that goes in and out of vogue every few years. She's also this unbelievably talented cartoonist. But her memoir is, it's so beautiful and it's kind of devastating, which maybe (laughs) sounds like an odd thing to say about, you know, a comic book. Uh, At least I came into it with some preconceived notions about comic books, but it's about growing up queer and coming out and contending with the complicated legacy of a parent who Was distant, who was emotionally abusive. And of course, it's not simple as it seems on the surface, but you know, she depicts just the hardest moments of her life and she explores these really complex themes of sexuality, grief, family, gender, all through her lens as this person who loves stories and makes all these literary allusions to the point that I like started making a list of all the like books she was alluding to because I wanted to look them up later and just her writing style in combination with these really intricate illustrations. It adds this like heartbreaking detail that's really, really complex and beautiful.
1: And it sounds like the perfect read for a December book club where a a lot of us spend time reflecting on childhood and our family relationships. It also means it's not a whole lot of reading for December. And this is also a book that has uh, recently faced some efforts to ban it. So I am always excited to read a banned book.
2: Yeah. And folks might be familiar with the title Fun Home because... Maybe in the last 10 years or so, it's been adapted into a Broadway musical, which I haven't seen yet and which kind of seemed like an odd choice to me when I heard about it the first time. But I think I absolutely have to see it uh, after my next reread now.
1: (laughs) All right. I'm going to read through the whole list one more time. In February, we're reading These Precious Days by Anne Padgett. In April, How High We Go in the Dark by Sequoia Nagamatsu. In June, The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. In August, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. October, Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro, and then in December, Fun Home by Alison Bechdel. This entire list will be on our website. You can find it at iowapublicradio.org/bookclub, and you can also join our Facebook group. Search for IPR's Talk of Iowa Book Club. Caitlin Troutman, thank you so much for helping me put together the list, and I am excited to spend the year reading with you.
2: <laughs> thank you. Uh, me too.
1: This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.